Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Nina Oslutunjeli, Chief Counsel of Government and Public Affairs and Executive Director of the Americans for the Arts Action Fund, and Narek Rome, Vice President of Government Affairs and Arts Education for Americans for the Arts, joins Brownstein Policy Advisor David Reed for a discussion moderated by our own Drew Lippman on how they advocate for the arts in Washington. Nina and Nara cover the challenge of sustaining federal funding, the Arts Action Fund, how arts education can fuel creative industry, and why one of their biggest policy partners is the United States Conference of Mayors. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm David Reed, a policy advisor at Brownstein. October is National Arts and Humanities Month, which makes it a perfect time to talk about the arts policy work we do here at Brownstein with our client, Americans for the Arts, and its Arts Action Fund. Americans for the Arts is a national arts and arts education membership organization representing thousands of state, local, and regional nonprofit and government arts agencies across the country to advance the arts in communities, schools, and people's lives. Additionally, 14 years ago, Americans for the Arts created an affiliated 501c4 advocacy organization to build citizen engagement for a grassroots movement to help advance the arts politically. We're joined today by Drew Lippman, a policy director at Brownstein, who back in 1991 was a staff director of the House Oversight Subcommittee that held a series of hearings intended to bolster the NEA and NEH and to demonstrate the problematic nature of the decency clause. I'm also joined by Americans for the Arts' two lead lobbyists. Nina is the Chief Counsel of Government and Public Affairs at Americans for the Arts and the Executive Director of the Arts Action Fund. And Narek Rome is the Vice President of Government Affairs and Arts Education at Americans for the Arts. Narek and Nina, thanks so much for joining us. I'll turn it over to Drew to get us started. Thank you, David. Narek, let's start with you. What is Americans for the Arts' legislative agenda? Sure. Thanks, Drew. So uh, we have a portfolio of federal cultural agency issue briefs. Specifically, we focus on the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Institute of Museum and Library Services. All of those agencies award grants to nonprofit and government cultural organizations in every state and congressional district in the country. So that's uh, m- those are mainly appropriations items in that set. Looking at arts education, there's a assistance to arts education grant program at the U.S. Department of Education. But we also focus on things like learning standards uh, for arts education, the role of Title I and the arts in supporting the arts, uh, that federal funding stream, and then also other areas of policy such as trying to build STEM initiatives into being STEAM initiatives when you insert the arts into them. And then lastly, aside from funding for cultural agencies and arts education policy, we also have a significant interest because of our membership base on preserving incentives for giving through the charitable tax deduction, as many of our membership uh, are nonprofits and are very concerned about uh, how they support themselves through donations. So so let me see if I could summarize that, Narek. You're facing Congress for some of your work and the executive branch, especially when it comes to the endowments, the National Endowment for the Arts and for the Humanities and education funding programs. You're also facing with your back to Congress, let's say, the rest of the country, school systems that are open to assistance for developing STEAM programs, as you call them, and you have some concern about tax provisions. Um, Some of these are, I don't know, perennial fights, annual fights, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Endowment for the Humanities, 
they've been in jeopardy for as long as I can remember politically. I've been in D.C. for 30 years. Do you see that abating ever? Is there, are we ever going to reach a point where the NEA is simply safe and we're only talking about funding adjustments? Well, uh, optimistically, yes. But every year there seems to be something that uh, still poses a threat. So there certainly has been decades' worth of bipartisan support demonstrated by Congress mm -hmm. and by administrations, for that uh, for that matter. In the current climate, in this current with this current administration, those agencies I mentioned, the NEA, the NEH, the Museum and Science uh, Sciences Institute, uh, those have all been called, proposed for termination mm -hmm. by the current uh, by the Trump administration. That certainly is uh, a threat. Uh, to the, you know, to all the congressional districts out there that receive grants through those agencies. That said, we've been working uh, with Brownstein to build support, bipartisan support that has been in place in Congress, building over the years, and that was most uh, evidenced this past July with a rejection of a floor vote in the House, mm -hmm. uh, a, a vote that sought to cut uh, the NEA and NEH by fifteen percent. Mm -hmm. That vote passed. Uh, I'm sorry, it was rejected. Uh, 297 to 114. Well done. Yeah. So that's a huge margin, and one that is to answer your question exactly where we think that there is support, but yet it takes work to get there every mm -hmm. year. Very good. Um, Nina, let me turn to you. Tell us about the role of the Arts Action Fund and explain for our listeners how the Arts Action Fund is different from Americans for the Arts. Great. And to follow up with your question, 14 years ago, we asked ourselves that same question. How are we going to get ourselves out of this perennial problem of fighting for the existence of public support for the arts, humanities, and cultural agencies? And what we decided is that we need to start getting involved in making relationships with elected officials before they're elected and while they're on the election campaign cycle and as candidates. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we decided to create a 501c4 organization which can spend 100% of its time on lobbying and up to 50% of its time on electoral activities. Um, and it is affiliated with Americans for the Arts, and it's called the Americans for the Arts Action Fund. Americans for the Arts is an organization of organizations. We represent local and state and regional arts councils across the country, nonprofit arts organizations delivering community services at the local level. What we needed to do is to turn these individuals who are passionate about the arts into passionate voters for the arts as well. And so the Arts Action Fund is an organization of individual citizens as opposed to organizations mm -hmm. because we relate to them and talk to them uh, as a voter as opposed to a policy leader. So what we do is we take a lot of the policy issues that NARIC works on as the legislative agenda at Americans for the Arts, and we put it into more, I would say, simple speak that explains how a policy at the national level impacts them on an individual level in terms of what will that mean in their schools? What will it mean in terms of the nonprofit organization providing more access to the arts? A bigger variety of arts programs being provided, outdoor festivals. What will it mean in terms of school policies of how many minutes per day or a 
even a requirement that they have an arts education uh, program in order to be able to graduate. Things like that. We bring it down to the most personal level in explaining what that national policy impact could mean so that we can activate them and encourage them to take action. We started 14 years ago, and we started with one member. And we now have 400,000 members. And, and what constitutes membership? There are several ways that you can join. You can join for free at artsactionfund.org um, because we didn't want to create a barrier for a financial involvement. Um, but we also um, run campaigns throughout the year. The most recent one was the hashtag Save the NEA to help raise funds for us to be able to do these kinds of activities. We direct most of our fundraising to the Connected Political Action Committee that we have. Mm-hmm which is the only pack in the country to advance the nonprofit arts. The only one we judge and determine how we support candidates based on what their record is as an incumbent in support for the arts or in terms of new candidates, fresh faces, and and setting out um, candidate arts surveys and determining what their pledge is to support the arts and arts education in the future. And it doesn't matter if there's a D or an R behind their name. Terrific. Uh, Narek, tell us a bit about the lobbying strategies you've employed, the tactics you've employed to succeed on the Hill. It, that voting margin that you talked about in the House sounds like a very favorable margin, robust level of support for the arts. How do you get there? Well, we try and do it in a couple of ways. Like all the other, or many of the other, associations in D.C., we have a National Arts Advocacy Day in Washington, D.C., about 650 advocates from around the country come into town. We brief them for a day, and then they go to Capitol Hill to meet with their members of Congress. That takes place every spring. Uh, It's uh, March 4th and 5th next year in 2019. And that's a product of not just Americans for the Arts, but it's a uh, work that is sponsored by about 85 national arts and arts uh, and civic organizations, ranging from places like the League of American Orchestras to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Having all of those, it's the largest coalition of its kind, and it helps to form a pretty substantial block of advocacy uh, each spring. And that's in addition to the state and local networks and their leaders that bring uh, the 650 folks to town, and that results in about 300 meetings in one day. And so between Arts Advocacy Day, where we formally present on some of those issues I mentioned before, on appropriations, on uh, things like the Crate Act, on the creative economy, we also try and put out a lot of easily digestible one-page fact sheets on research, uh, some of the studies that we have on economic impact, and uh, some of the maps that demonstrate where these jobs are in the creative economy are very effective. Uh, because we have a map for every congressional district, and we show who the employers are and how many employees there are who are producing arts, crafts, and jobs in the creative economy. What I saw in the early 90s when it came to preserving arts funding was that the issue that you just talked about, the community-by-community economic impact, in the end was the most important issue. I'd like to say it was because members of Congress had a great appreciation for the arts, or we instilled that in them with dynamic hearings, with important witnesses, but that's not really the case. And the real champion of the endowments was not a coastal congressman. It was Pat Williams from Montana, 
who chaired the key approps subcommittee and and Williams was really a relentless champion in the face of all kinds of obstacles because arts funding was not a priority for Congress uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and, and for Williams, it was very much an issue of community. It was an issue of what he was getting, not that he didn't appreciate the arts, but it was an issue of what he was bringing home for Montana. He saw these programs. He talked about these programs in many ways, the same way champions of other federal spending programs talk about those programs. And when you describe that map for people who aren't involved in lobbying on a day-to-day basis, you're describing exactly what the big spending defense contractors have done so well, which was basically to spread their projects across multiple subcontractors, across congressional districts, for the very purpose of bringing a map, literally a map, like you said, to Capitol Hill, saying, Congressman, before before you take a vote, you ought to know this subcontractor and sub-subcontractor, they're in your district, they create this many jobs, this is the impact those jobs have. So it sounds like um, you've learned from the big hardball players. That's exactly right. Uh, Everything you've just said is what we've tried to convert into the advocacy for the nonprofit arts. The maps, as you described them, are incredibly powerful. Every member of Congress knows their district like the back of their hand. And when you show them where these dots are and where these are their constituents employed, working, producing, and contributing to their community and to the workforce, it's a very powerful thing. And it's for the reasons you just stated. And it helps us to demonstrate then nationally what the power is of that sector, the creative economy, and specific to the creative industries that uh, make that make up that creative economy. And we rounded up to about 670,000 employers out there, uh, and it's supporting overall roughly 4.5 million jobs. There's even a larger study by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the agency within the Commerce Department that demonstrates a $600 billion a year broad creative economy. And we are trying to demonstrate that not only do the nonprofit sector, which is a piece of that, but more broadly, investing in the arts, in arts education, all of that is to support that workforce the way you'd support any workforce Mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill. And it sounds like, uh, Nina, Narek, David, anyone anyone can jump in here. It sounds like you've gotten away from the paradigm of being put on the defensive uh, to talk about specific art projects or artworks, because if you're funding enough art projects, something's bound to offend somebody. Otherwise, no one's doing their doing their job, right? The money's not well spent. I mean, art is going to have to offend somebody at some point. And, and where, the, where the NEA seemed to get stuck was over cherry-picking a particular work or a work by an artist. It wasn't even necessarily NEA-funded, but maybe the artist got money from the NEA for some other project. And next thing you know, you're being denounced on the floor of the Senate by someone who's scoring big points. But it looks like you've escaped that paradigm. Yeah, um, and that has a lot to do with another non-coastal member from Ohio, Ralph Regula, a Republican, Mm. Mm. um, who kind of worked very closely with Pat Williams back then. He created a series of new rules about um, how NEA and NEH can be funded. The first thing that went out, unfortunately, in our mind was grants to individual artists. And so that those grants only go to organizations at this point. And then the second thing that happened is that uh, grants couldn't go for general operating support anymore. It had to go for very specific funding. Mm -hmm. Those were the two areas that 
got caught up with a lot of those decency um, challenges. And so I think that's the reason why a lot of that has been reduced. But in some ways, it's also reduced um, the vitality of creativity in happening, um, being able to support artists in the early part of their career or mid-career and being able to have the time to create instead of having to worry about paying the rent at the same time really gave them an opportunity to really rise. But alternatives have been found. Foundations have jumped in to kind of um, fill that role. So it's okay. And then along the lines, when you were talking about the economic impact study, if I could just jump in and talk about a very specific role that um, Brownstein helped us Mm -hmm. with, and that is when we face the issues of um, the Trump administration almost two years ago now, um, uh, declaring that they wanted to terminate pretty much every cultural agency in the federal government. We knew that we had to really step up, and that's when Brownstein came in to really help us. Uh, And one of the things that was recommended to put on the table is, in addition to all of the perennial work that we do, the research work that we do, Arts Advocacy Day, let's do strategic Mm fly-ins. And what we wanted to do was we released the latest economic impact study last year when it was the most critical year that we were under the gun under the administration. And what we did was we matched up um, the over 300 cities that we did direct economic impact studies on with key congressional districts of members that had influential say. See, that's hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and David helped us pick where those right communities were to match them up. And what we knew that was needed that David really kind of emphasizes is that the numbers are extremely important, but we need the stories from back home to accompany those, story, mm-hmm. to those numbers so that the numbers aren't just numbers. It's, there are people's faces behind that. There are people's stories behind that. Stores, shops everything that's going on. So in the let, let me interrupt. That's very interesting and, and I think instructive for people who are, who are listening in terms of how you do this successfully, because there's a lot of noise. Every group has a lobbying day, right? So, so how do you distinguish yours from the others? Are you, are you bringing people out? You talked about 300 uh, cities. Mm-hmm. Are you bringing people out or are people coming out? Are they coming out at their own expense so that they can be deployed to visit the relevant uh, House offices and Senate offices? And are you bringing talent out? Are you bringing artists? And if so, who comes out and how effective are they in drawing attention, which is important, right, that they know why they're here, and how effective are they in messaging? Right. In terms of how they come out, there it's twofold. I'm going to have Narek explain how the Arts Advocacy Day folks come, about 700, and then I'll do the fly-in. Narek. Sure. So for Arts Advocacy Day, there's we try to hit, as I mentioned, we have grassroots advocates from the cities. These are arts leaders from cities, state leaders. But then also try to expand beyond that into the grass top section where the artists uh, who come to Arts Advocacy Day and also participate in – we have an annual lecture called the Nancy Hanks Lecture mm-hmm. at the Kennedy Center. They provide that address on one night, uh, the, the artists that come to town. Uh, these in some cases are – People like Robert Redford is delivering the Hanks Lecture on one day and then testifies before Congress on the next day. Uh, Other artists that have done that at uh, Arts Advocacy Day are Yo-Yo Ma, Alec Baldwin, uh, Norman Lear, Wynton Marsalis, Ken Burns, uh, and the late Wendy Wasserstein, Billy Taylor, and Maya Angelou. And they do open doors, uh, for sure, as you said. But they also demonstrate and share 
how they became the artists that they are. And that starts, obviously, decades earlier with arts education, mm-hmm. with the opportunity in the creative economy. Uh, and they testify and provide both their passion and they provide their life story, which connects to a lot of members of Congress as to where they came from. What, what I also found uh, back in the day is that a number of these artists we see them as famous and we assume that they were practically born famous, that their stardom was recognized when they were teenagers. But in fact, a lot of them started out out of high school, maybe out of college in, this isn't a judgment, what are obscure arts groups, theatrical troops, uh, perhaps that got funding from an endowment. And without the endowment funding, probably wouldn't have existed. Um, there, there are some favorite authors of members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans. I think of, um, we didn't have him as a witness, but James Lee Burke writes the popular Dave Robichaud novels. Every novel he writes is a New York Times bestseller. Um, he's talked in the past about how, but for the National Endowment for the Humanities, he could not have become a writer. He needed that, another Montanan, incidentally, I think, he needed that boost from the NEH when he was writing, he was uh, experimenting with writing uh, serious novels, not that his crime novels aren't serious, but before he became a series writer. So, so I think members are surprised and interested staff as well to find that some of their favorite artists, who they don't at all, they only see as successful, needed that boost uh, at the beginning. And that is a testament to the cost effectiveness, I think, of the endowment grants. Ken Burns is an example of that. He go. got his initial funding um, from the NEA and the NEH to mm-hmm. create the Civil War series that put him on the map. That's a great example. Another one is Robert Redford received the Sundance Institute when that was begin- beginning, was also an NEA-granted uh, project uh-huh. at the very beginning. And now, for Utah, it's a huge economic boon. I would, that's, a, that's a great example of a multiplier effect uh, from a grant, because I don't think Redford did not intend uh, to build an empire. I met with him when I worked for Boxer. I think he, that started off as a modest project, and it was intended only ever to be a modest project. And, and it has become, indeed, an empire. It's one of the most important annual—their their film festival is one of the most important annual American cultural events, and, and a huge economic engine. I mean, everyone makes money. Restaurant owners, you don't have to be associated with the arts. Uh, people selling skiing equipment, tour guides, all kinds of folks making money uh, off Redford's original project. And then, as you mentioned, a lot of these artists, before they became big— they had a foundation of arts education in their schools, but more importantly even, um, they participated in nonprofit arts organizations, external programs um, um, that were not necessarily school-based, and that was their early learning. I think of Josh Groban and Kerry Washington and Jeff Daniels all telling their stories like that. Even Linda Ronstadt started off early in being exposed to the arts by attending a local music arts organization um, programs. But I also want to come back to the the technical question you asked about how do we get these people here. Yes, yes. So um, during Arts Advocacy Day, we have a whole series of state captains that come from every part of the country that lead these delegations. We subsidize um, part of their travel to come. And the other registrants that are coming from the various different districts are paying their own, but we keep it at a low registration rate. In terms of the very targeted fly-ins that we did that were matching up the economic impact study. We did three of those these past year. Um, We pay for all of that um, Mm -hmm. with the generous um, grant that we were able to receive. And what's nice about that is 
the whole focus of that is about telling their story. And so we also videotape that story so that it goes viral on the web as well and on social media. We also create, through their lead, op-eds that get placed in the local newspapers of that congressional district at the same time as they're coming to Washington. They get that op-ed written before they attend so that they can hand-deliver it in person. We also get ads placed with that congressional map with all the dots of every art organization, um, both for-profit and non-profit, that are employers in that district in the newspaper, so that can also be delivered. It's a one-two punch, I think. More than a one-two punch, and I think very important for our listeners to understand, if they follow the subject, they may read about you know artists on the Hill, they may see a picture in the paper or, or online, but they don't realize that that's just the tip of what really sounds like an iceberg that you've constructed of a comprehensive uh, effort, and I think that's very much to be applauded. I want to I want to go back to something, Narek. You mentioned the Nancy Hanks lecture, bringing a distinguished artist out to Washington every year and building on that uh, for advocacy purposes. There has not been a national uh, medal for the arts or medal for the humanities awarded in the last couple of years. Is that something we can hope to see change? Because that's also an occasion, a very well covered usually occasion, with very prominent artists usually. With careers of distinction who cross over a lot of uh, lines in terms of fan support? Um, I just asked that question on Monday um, afternoon to a political appointee at the National Endowment for the Arts, and they assured me that it's coming very soon, ah. an announcement for Medal of Arts. And, and is that something you'll build on uh, for advocacy purposes? Um, it depends. It depends if we're involved. It depends on how it rolls out. Right. But it certainly underscores a significant statement by this administration who has appointed a new chair at the National Endowment for the Humanities and uh, is currently uh, considering a new chair for uh, appointing a new chair for the NEA that they have uh, beyond the fact that they've called for termination. There are other ways that they also want to support arts and culture in America. And we think that's an important step in trying to build support within this administration. And I suppose one hopes that when the endowments have presidents, faces, chairs, faces associated with them, it'll be a little harder to make that decision, uh, sort of ruthless decision to cut them out of the budget, just as a practical matter, as an issue of human nature. The one thing, unfortunately, though, the administration was successful in cutting was the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities, Mm -hmm. which was a advisory body appointed by the President on arts and humanities issues. And that term had expired in September of last year, and the President chose not to Mm -hmm. renew it. Mm -hmm. So a a lot of um, individuals, um, both within the industry, both the for-profit, non-profit side, were really there as advisors, and that got dismantled. Let me let me see if I could take us in a different direction. We've we've alluded to the political situation in in talking about some of our subjects today. Let me ask you a broader question. Anyone can feel uh, uh, that they can jump in on this. I'm wondering if you've got a sense of how an appreciation of the arts helps people navigate today's uncertain landscape where consensus on truth is hard to find. Truth, what the truth is, seems to be constantly disputed or or up for grabs in a way that it wasn't previously. 
does arts education give people tools with which to better at least participate in this debate and maybe to apprehend the truth? Thoughts? Well, we probably all have uh, a different take on that or, or additional takes on it. I think for arts education, at the core of what that's about uh, is certainly both the appreciation of art, which is important, but also trying to uh, build the skills of interpreting your mm-hmm. life, uh, mm-hmm. your understanding, mm-hmm. what you see is happening in your community and, and who you are and who your family and community, what, what you stand for. And I think that uh, being able to have that as a permanent and critical part of our educational system is important. And I think broader to your point, uh, having citizens who can uh, understand their both what art delivers in terms of our history as a as a as a country, but also where we're going and who is here and who makes up this country and what we're trying to do as a uh, political body and political in a broad sense, that is. Well, thanks. Nina, you want to have a go at that? Sure. Um, We actually um, recently conducted a national poll um, with Ipsos, and it asked a lot of questions related to how the arts can bridge connections with your community, Mm -hmm. can help build an individual to become a whole individual. This is American Speak Out for the Arts 2018? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And the numbers were off the chart in terms of how people see the arts. I mean, we know that the economic impact argument works with decision makers, but in terms of what motivates an individual, it's about how it makes them feel inside and how they feel connected to others by sharing Mm -hmm. an arts experience together. Mm -hmm. So that is really important in terms of addressing your question about the arts is what's going to bring us back together as a country. David Reed, spokesman for your generation, you have some some thoughts on that? Well, no, and and I I agree. Um, I think that the arts especially is a way in which people from various walks of life, but also people from uh, ideologically different uh, backgrounds can come together. And you see that both in big cities here in Washington and up and down the East Coast, but also even more importantly, in some of these smaller towns where you don't necessarily have these convening opportunities like you do around arts opportunities, whether it be visual arts or performing arts or some of the other things that just more broadly bring people together that wouldn't otherwise be coming together because you do have such a polarization of where folks get information and where people tend to congregate online. This is a way to cut through that and bring folks together. And I think that now more than ever, it's extremely important to continue to push for those types of opportunities. Well, thanks. Very thoughtful answers. Let me ask another question in that vein, if I may. We've encountered unprecedented fragmentation of media, let's call it inputs, uh, that people receive. When I was young, there were three major broadcast television networks, and next morning in school or at work after a program, everyone watched the same program, everybody talked about the same program. Today, you have everyone's got cable or something like cable, hundreds of channels, streaming services, maybe independent of cable or using cable just as a as a conduit, and of course, apps. So everyone is getting inputs from different directions, and, and this goes to the truth issue, but it also goes to artistic consumption. It used to be, it was clear who mediated the arts for people, prestigious museum, PBS, and maybe a couple of other sources. Now it seems much murkier. 
harder to figure out what are the authoritative sources or whether there should be authoritative sources. Do you think that arts education or anything else that um, Americans for the Arts might be working on is helpful to people in sorting out all of these inputs because it's got to be bewildering to so many people? You know, the thing about the arts is it makes you be reflective. Mm -hmm. It it's telling you, it's putting up a mirror to you to reflect on what's going on. And if we can get more people to be reflective and not just consume what's given to them, but to think about it, question it, challenge it, which is exactly what arts education does, I think we will all be better off news consumers. Positively eloquent. Thank you, Nina. Narek, can you, can you match that? <laughs> I, I, I can't in the eloquence, but in the policy department, what I was going to mention is that what you're putting your finger on is the ever-changing business model of the arts, either mm-hmm. nonprofit or for-profit, mm-hmm. but artists themselves are creators, so there's that word now, and they create in different ways and for different organizations and for different purposes. Government has a role there to help uh, encourage both their creation and their innovation, but also the small business aspect of that. And we've been working on a bill uh, in Congress uh, called the CREATE Act that would identifies about a dozen ways that the federal government could support the overall economy that would also benefit small businesses, artists, and entrepreneurs in the arts to continue that creating and uh, hopefully that the consumption and understanding that Nina was referring to can continue in all of its varied ways and multifaceted outputs uh, as well. Well, that's very interesting. I think one of the things you're suggesting is that the barriers to entry are simply lower for artists now. That is to say, you don't have to live near a museum or a gallery because there are more ways to to get it out there, to self-publish in a sense. Is that what you're thinking in terms of education and in terms of entrepreneurialism? Because obviously, at the end, most artists want to sell their art, even Banksy does, and and because that is how they're going to earn a living. And you're suggesting that with earlier education, they have a better prospect of learning how to do that, practical terms. That's right. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the degree that there can be uh, the doors of that opportunity can be opened either at the educational level or for supporting small businesses in rural parts of the country where now they have access to those markets because of the Internet that they never had before mm-hmm. in selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, platforms like Etsy and the arts pieces on, on eBay, those are important to uh, those who make and produce products uh, of imagination. That is uh, new models. Those are incomes, and those are people's jobs. I think that's quite interesting. Um, let me move to uh, another subject, policy partners that you, that you work with, other organizations, other groups, other teams. Anyone particularly effective as a partner? Anyone whose work you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Our most stellar partner is the United States Conference of Mayors. Oh, huh. The nation's mayors are the number one supporters of the arts because they're closest to the ground and they see the impact of the arts on their community in redesigning the city mm-hmm. and bringing people back into the center city mm-hmm. to go and make it lively at night with theater and music and cultural centers. Um, 
to the tune of over $1 billion of public local government money per year is given to support the arts across the country to create a situation where tourists will want to come. It's a known fact that's been studied by the Department of Commerce that there are tourists that can stay maybe two days and um, average, say, $20 per day of extra kind of activities. I'm I'm throwing out a number right now. But an arts tourist will stay an extra day always, spend more money. Um, Fantastic. And that's and cities know that. And mm-hmm. so that's why uh, they will always um, perhaps add a percentage of um, hotel motel tax mm-hmm. that absolutely support the arts. We have a situation in San Francisco, Proposition E, um, that is up this year to designate a percentage of funds in San Francisco for arts and cultural organizations. Wow. Terrific. And to extend that even further, we have formal partnerships built on the U.S. Conference of Mayors model with the Lieutenant Governor's Association, the National Association of Counties, uh, the Conference of State Legislatures, uh, the National League of Cities. And in the education front, the National PTA mm-hmm. and the Education Commission on the states, those are all ways that we try to work with those partners and those who represent decision makers in extending the arts and arts education into their work, because there is a significant overlap, as Nina just laid out, at all levels of uh, those governments. And I expect that you would stress that all of the organizations that you and Nina have just mentioned are nonpartisan or bipartisan Very much so. organizations. Really, it's, it's economic development or the development of young minds, but in any case, there's no partisan agenda involved. Yep. Let me, uh, as, we, as we prepare to exit, let me ask you, Nina, if you'd like to preview 2019 for Americans for the Arts and the Arts Action Fund. Yeah, specifically the Arts Action Fund, because on an electoral front, we plan to be on the ground in early primary states. We're going to be at the soapbox. Presidential primaries. Presidential about, primaries. Yes. Yep. We'll be at the soapbox at the Iowa State Fair. We're going to be doing coffee clutches in New Hampshire. We have advocates on the ground who will be armed with specific questions, video cameras to document answers um, on questions about how each candidate feels about arts policy. We'll document it and broadcast it to the world. So you we'll- don't mess with these artists, man. <laughs> Because they'll, they'll just they'll build a narrative around whatever you happen to say into their iPhone. You're off and running. No, that that's really interesting. Actually, you have a bit of an advantage here. Yeah. Which you're going to press. That's good. Yeah. And in 2020, you'll see us at the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention doing major programs and bringing more visibility to the arts policy and hopefully some clauses inside the policy agendas of those conventions. So maybe get into the presidential platforms. Yes. Fantastic. Narek, anything you want to add there? Uh, just that all of this kind of work is supported by, you know, I, we didn't mention, but there's a Congressional Arts Caucus in the House, about 177 members strong, led by mm-hmm. Congresswoman Pingree on the Democratic side and Congressman Leonard Lance on the Republican side. And then the Senate, Senator Tom Udall and, and Senator Susan Collins on the Senate Cultural Caucus. Between those caucuses, the other national partner, public sector partners we mentioned, there's we, we try and hold all these folks together uh, to try and further and advance this, this agenda, the, the arts agenda. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with all of them. Well, that's terrific. And thanks for filling us in, and thanks for filling our listeners in on the great work you've been doing. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Nina, Narek, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.